You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I've got an exciting interview lined up for you today. Joining us is Dr. Aaron M. Ellison from the Harvard Forest. He is a research fellow, and he specializes in community ecology and ecological dynamics of changing populations, but that's not why he's necessarily here to talk to us today. He's here to talk to us about his new book on carnivorous plants, their physiology, ecology, and evolution. It's a great textbook and a wonderful look into the world of, again, their physiology, their ecology, and their evolution. Now, some of you listening that have taken statistics courses might recognize Dr. Ellison's name from the Primer and Ecological Statistics book that he wrote. That was my introduction to him, so it was nice to sit down and hear about the parts of his research that he uses all of his statistical knowledge on. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to say one thing. We still have stickers for sale in defenseofplants.com slash shop. And the exciting thing about the stickers is now I can ship to other countries. So if you're living outside of the United States, you have the option to order them directly from the website in defenseofplants.com slash shop. All right, enough out of me. Let's head on over to my conversation with Dr. Ellison. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Aaron Ellison, it's so great to have you on the podcast. How about you start off telling us a bit about who you are and what it is you do? Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on the In Defense of Plants podcast. It's great to be here. I am a senior research fellow here at Harvard University. I work at the Harvard Forest, and I've been here since 2001. In fact, my first day on the job was September 11th, 2001, for those of your listeners who remember such dates. Yeah. And so I've been here for, as I said, since 2001. And before that, I taught at Mount Holyoke College in Western Massachusetts for a dozen years, where I went through the ranks and uh, taught ecology and statistics and conservation. And here at Harvard Forest, I'm essentially a research professor, so I don't do any teaching, formal classroom teaching here at all. Um, I, I spend most of my time doing research on how ecological systems are organized and put together, how they respond and change and disintegrate, as it were, disassemble in the response to a variety of disturbances, both natural, like, say, hurricanes, climate disruptions, ice storms, volcanoes, and anthropogenic disturbances, like, say, hurricanes and climate change and <laughs> fires, same sorts of things. So there's not a, there's not a big distinction sure. between, they're just disturbances and how these things respond. And then I study how the systems reorganize themselves after the disturbance, which most systems do, and they come back in different ways. And I study this in a wide variety of systems. I study it in ant assemblages, ant communities uh, in Brazil and in Germany and here in Massachusetts. I study it in hemlock forests, where hemlock forests are changing and declining due to the non-native hemlock woolly adelgid. And I study it for the longest amount of time now, 
in the inquiline communities, the small communities of protozoa, bacteria, and small invertebrate larvae that live in the water-filled leaves of carnivorous pitcher plants. That is awesome. And I was kind of going to work around to how did it go from, you know, you've got a very broad ecological career. I came to your work because of your statistical background. Uh, my first book I ever owned by you was uh, Primer in Ecological Statistics. Hey, sell it to all your friends. It's a great book. Oh, we all own that, actually. All my friends took that class. But great. it's very curious how carnivorous plants came to be the focus. And as you mentioned, it was because of the way you study the communities that live within them. That is fascinating in and of itself. But for those that think carnivorous plants are there to simply eat animals, what would something be doing living inside of a pitcher plant? So many carnivorous plants in their traps have spaces in the traps that are filled with water. So pitcher plants, at least at our northern pitcher plant here in uh, in the New England, in New England, it ranges from the Gulf Coast up to Labrador and over to British Columbia. So there the pitchers are open to the sky and they collect rainwater. And in other pitcher plants that aren't open to rainwater, they are secreting fluid that drown the insects. So in Cephalotus in Australia, in the Penthes in Southeast Asia, the other Saracenias here, Darlingtonia on the West Coast, Helium for the, uh, the sun pitchers, as well as the bromeliads on the tapuis are also open to the sky and collect rainwater. Anywhere where there are water-filled things, other things will live. There are bacteria that can tolerate the low pH in pitcher plants, just like we have tapeworms that can live in our gut, even though it's an otherwise very inhospitable environment. There are fly larvae and mosquito larvae and midges and mites that have evolved to tolerate this environment. And then there are other carnivorous plants that also have water-filled traps or air-filled traps like utricularia, the bladderworts, which have a whole community of organisms, bacteria, and small protists that live inside of their lumen as well. And that one of the chapters we have in the carnivorous plant books talks about how these may be involved in commensal relationships with the bladderworts. And so evolution will out and anywhere where there's somewhere to live there, you're likely to find some things to live. But what's remarkable about the communities in our pitcher plants here in the United States First off, it's a multi-trophic level community, so it goes from bacteria, actually goes first from the animals that are caught, mostly ants and other insects that are shredded by the detritivores, and then the, the detritus, the little fragments are broken up by the bacteria, further digested by bacteria, and then that works its way up the food chain. And it's a nice five-trophic level food web, much like you might find in a really big lake, but you can actually do interesting experiments hmm. with lots and lots of replication in pitcher plants. And it's much harder to have lots and lots of replicate lakes that you can do the same kind of experiment in. And there's much more permitting involved in doing experiments sure. in big lakes than there is in, in pitcher plants that you can grow in the greenhouse, for example. That's exciting. So this miniature world inside of these, these spaces, these chambers that eventually fill with water is it's it's a microcosm to be able to study some of these larger complex theories within ecology but it's obvious to me just hearing you talk about it this interest in the inquiline communities has blossomed into an appreciation and interest for all things carnivorous plants has it not absolutely i mean you you can't you can't but love them 
right? <laughs> and it always helps, of course, when you're doing science and trying to communicate the really cool and exciting things that we find to much broader audiences. It always helps to have a good story to tell or a really interesting organism to work with. And nothing gets people excited like carnivorous plants, right? Whether it's Little Shop of Horrors or the Triffids or, <laughs> you know, everyone has bought a Venus flytrap. Most people have bought Venus flytraps at Home Depot. They promptly go home and kill them, but then they're back for more because sure. everybody loves carnivorous plants. And so you have great stories to tell and people People are immediately engaged. And it's also a way to get people interested in thinking about plants who might not otherwise pay attention to plants, right? It's mm -hmm. an entree to, to learning about plants. And plants are really cool and really important, but we're often blind to the plants around us. And carnivorous plants are a hook to get people learning about plants and then maybe they go on to learn about other plants so you know we all i think i think a lot of ecologists certainly myself uh included we start out with a real fondness for natural history and what's going on in the world around us and then we turn that not only into our passion but also into our day job and <laughs> feel like we're the luckiest people in the world because we get paid for our passion and <laughs> Yes, it's a very cool system and we can answer all sorts of really interesting and exciting and important scientific questions with it. And they're really awesome plants to work with. Yeah. And like you said, they're super charismatic. There's so much just on the surface to love about these plants, whether it's their fact that they're trapping insects or just how cool they look. But then you start to scrape away those surface layers and you realize everything from the biology and the physiology all the way up to their, the macroecology of these organisms is Mind-blowing. And that's really why you're here today is to talk about a new publication that's coming out called Carnivorous Plants, Physiology, Ecology, and Evolution that you and someone else have gotten together and written. <laughs> uh, or edited. Sure. Or edit. Okay. Giving credit where credit is due. Right. So I guess this is a monumental undertaking. You mentioned in the intro that it's not the first time someone's tried to synthesize the material, but uh, you were doing this in 2018 or probably started earlier than that. You're coming along when there's a lot of information out there. So I guess the real question is, is what was the impetus to write or, or edit a new book on this? And, and what was kind of the direction you wanted to take it for those that might be interested in picking it up? There are, of course... Lots and lots of books out there on carnivorous plants, most of which are lavishly illustrated, magnificently photographed coffee table books about carnivorous plants or how-to books about how to grow them and how to keep them alive, all of which are chock full of interesting information about how to grow them. It turns out they're actually surprisingly easy to grow and you can be very creative with them. Certainly. And there are carnivorous plant clubs and societies just about everywhere. I just got back from talking to the Mid-Atlantic Carnivorous Plant Society a couple weeks ago and Excellent. the New England Carnivorous Plant Society a few weeks before that. There's the International Carnivorous Plant Society hmm. for people who get into that. And I hope you're coming to their meeting in August out in San Francisco. I guess it's Santa Rosa, just north of San Francisco. Biennial meeting. You got to check it out. <laughs> anyway, but it turns out that there are remarkably few what we'd call technical or scholarly monographs on the topic that would allow scientists and whether it's budding scientists in high school or, or before or in college doing first research projects or lab projects or graduate students looking for thesis and dissertation research or new faculty members like I was looking for new systems to work with close to home. The resources on uh, the publications are widely scattered 
in the literature, and there are literally thousands of them. I mean, dozens are coming out every day. So the syntheses of information on carnivorous plants that are aimed at working scientists are few and far between. So Darwin wrote the first one in 1875. Francis Lloyd wrote the second one, came out in 1942. Barry Juniper and uh, his colleagues wrote one that came out in 1989. And then this one that I did with my uh, Czech colleague, Lubomir Adamek, came out in just this spring in 2018. Both Lubomir and I had been approached independently, both by our colleagues and by various publishers, asking us if we would be interested in in update and basically doing the uh, the next update after after Juniper's book came out uh, in the mid 80s. Starting about, I'm going to say about 10 years ago, we started getting queries from our colleagues and our publishers, you know, we really need something put together, you know, would you like to do it? to either to me or to Lubomir. Publishers love the idea because everyone loves carnivorous plants. <laughs> and we realized, both of us independently realized it as we were as we were thinking about it, that this was really just too much for one or even two people to bite off anymore as a project. The literature has grown tremendously. And it's all over the place from molecular biology up to ecology and conservation. And we're really no longer at the point where one or even a small number of people can, can keep all of that information in their head at the same time. So we had kind of shell kept saying no to people. And then Lubomir and I had met at the International Botanic Congress in Vienna back in, must have been 2005, and I had been a keynote speaker at the conference and he was a keynote speaker and we got to talking and we hit it off and we did a review paper together a couple years later. And then we were talking about some more and we both said, hey, you know, I've been asked and I know terrestrial carnivorous plants well and you know aquatic carnivorous plants well and maybe we could do something together and maybe we could get our buddies to help out. So <laughs> That was sort of the germ of the idea. It's like, okay, well, we can't do it ourselves, but maybe with a bunch of people we could do it. So we recruited what ended up being 66 other people to to help write things. There are 24 different lead authors of the 30-some chapters in the book. Lubomir wrote a few chapters himself. I wrote a few chapters as well. But then we got the experts in the field to summarize their particular sub-discipline. Then we put it all together and uh, and edited it and did all the things that, that one needs to do to make a, a coherent book out of it, which is no small undertaking. It took about uh, two years from when we got the contract to when it went to press, which actually is pretty quick for this sort of thing. And we also tried to differentiate it from the previous ones. I mean, Darwin and Lloyd and Juniper Robbins and Joel were really focused on lab experiments, on understanding how carnivorous plants digest things, how they actually work. And that's pretty well understood at this point. But the open questions were really field-based questions and on their ecology and evolutionary biology. And so rather than reinvent an anatomical and developmental biology wheels, um, we went for the stuff that hadn't been done before as the sort of next step in a lot of the conservation. So a lot of the focus 
and, and then our volume is on field-based work. Of course, in the last 30 years, there's been a lot more work done in the field because the lab work has been pretty well mm. understood. And so people started doing much more field work. So there was a lot to draw on in that in that respect. And so, you know, we hope in part that this will encourage people to get out in the field and look at these things and help conserve them before they disappear, but also to then take that information that they get back in the field and do the next generation of lab experiments, particularly a lot of the genomics and transcriptomics to really understand the molecular biology of how these things evolve and how they how they work at the molecular level. Yeah. And, and you know, one theme that kind of keeps going throughout what I've been able to read, obviously, I haven't read the whole text yet, but it is coherent. <laughs> it is very coherent. It's very easy to pick up, even for someone that's not necessarily well versed in that specific literature. But it, it isn't an easy task to pick up something and try to say, well, I want to make this a complete or as best as complete. It'll never be complete. This is something that could go on year after year after year, as it has shown to do. But what I do appreciate is the fact that you are approaching this, again, from this phylogenetic standpoint, more of the more recent work, especially how these organisms relate. And one of the staggering things about carnivorous plants is that this has evolved independently in multiple lineages. And what is even more staggering to realize is that you don't usually find a common ancestor that shares some sort of intermediate trait. What we generally see is like the tip of that ad ad adaptive radiation and not a lot of the steps to get there. So molecular bases are really where we're kind of elucidating a lot of these strange relationships, right? That's exactly right. And when Darwin wrote his book, he thought that all the carnivorous plants were related to one <laughs> another. And he was working really hard to identify homologies, shared characters that share a common ancestor among all the carnivorous plants. And that turned out not to work. And even in Juniper's book, there was still a sense that a lot of them were much more related to one another than we now know. There was also the question of whether carnivorous plants represent a very derived groups of plants in the plant kingdom or whether they were they're very ancestral in the plants. And so Leon Croziat, a very famous plant biogeographer and creative biogeographer in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, in his um, big book on, on plant evolution and biogeography, he actually placed the carnivorous plants at the base of the angiosperm lineage, that they were, mm. they were the proto-angiosperms. And that clearly has not turned out <laughs> to be the case. They're, they're quite derived. But he had a very you know, reasonable, logical structure that, that at least made some sense from the morphological point of view, from just looking at shapes and structures, but turns out not to be well supported by the molecular work. And so the molecular work has, has helped us in a number of ways. First off, we, we see the multiple lineages that carnivorous plants have evolved in. And just to give you a sense of the pace, in 2009, Nick Catelli and I, you know, who wrote the, the stats book together, we wrote a review on carnivorous plant ecology and evolution for the, I guess, must have been the 150th anniversary, birth anniversary of Darwin, something like that, or of the origin of species. And so we wrote a review of, of carnivorous plants. And at the time, so this is 2009, there were 600 plus or minus known carnivorous plants, and we knew that they had arisen in six independent plant lineages. By the time we finished this book, 
nine years later, actually eight years later, by the, given the <laughs> lag to publication, there were now 800 plus, 830 or so described species of carnivorous plants. So the, the number of carnivorous plants described had increased by, by 30%. And we now knew that there were at least 10 independent evolutionary lineages of carnivorous plants. So in nine years, we had changed the number of species by 30% and increased the number of evolutionary events leading to carnivory by, what's that, four over six, by 60%, wow. right? So that's the pace at which the, the understanding has changed. At the same time, the genomics has, uh, has shown us that even though there's these are all disparate lineages, that they're common themes about how we go from plant defensive mechanisms to plant carnivorous mechanisms to trapping and digesting mechanisms. And so even though these are unrelated lineages and we learn a lot about convergence because of that, there are common themes in how you get from one kind of plant to another kind of plant. And so they're not all homologous, but the general pathway tends to go in similar ways. It's like in many of the different lineages, we go from relatively simple carnivorous plant traps, sticky traps, flypapers, to more complicated traps, pitfall traps, bladder traps, corkscrew traps, things that are much more elaborate. And so we see this again and again in the lineages, whether it's in the Drosera to Nepenthes to Dionea lineage or the butterwort to bladderwort to corkscrew plant lineage, whether we see it, we see it the other way around in the, in the Saracenia Virigula lineage, but in general, it goes easy traps to hard traps. <laughs> so they're common themes and common bow plants, even though they're unrelated to one another. Yeah, and that's one of the great things that comes from a synthesis like this is getting everything in kind of one big picture and being able to start seeing these macro patterns come out of the data. And one of the themes, again, that runs through this, and you had mentioned it, is the fact that a lot of carnivory must have started somewhere as a defense mechanism gone awry, perhaps, or being retooled in a lot of different ways. Is that a theme throughout all of the lineages or as far as most that we know at this point? At the molecular level, it seems to be a common theme. So we see this in Cephalotus, the Australian pitcher plant. We see it in Utricularia. We see it in some of the Drosseras. We really on, we've only got of these 830 some carnivorous plants, we've got 13 or so good genomes and maybe 15 good transcriptomes at this point. So we're picking and choosing, but we're getting there, you know, but where we look, we see common patterns. And it usually is something going from a, a defensive compound to a digestive compound. Because for plants, there are only a certain number of solutions that as adaptive solutions, evolutionary solutions that we can, that the plants can actually use. And evolution works with what it has. And there's this longstanding understanding of plants and insects and other herbivores being in what Paul Ehrlich and Peter Raven described as a co-evolutionary arms race between plants and their herbivores. So you got a plant and it's really tasty and something wants to eat it. And so something comes along and eats it and the plant because it doesn't want to be eaten, figures out how to defend itself against the herbivore. And it makes chemicals and it makes thorns and it makes structures. And it does all sorts of things across the entire planking. And there are a lot of different defense mechanisms, but they're physical things, there are chemical things, there are sticky things, and there are 
things that herbivores will choke on. They're latexes and gums mm-hmm. and things like that. You can count the number of big classes of these in, you know, on like two hands, but then there's huge numbers of elaboration, hundreds of plant defensive chemicals, many of which we use for pharmaceuticals, right? Those get turned in. And, but then the, the insect or the herbivore figures out how to get around it. And detoxifies it or learns to live in the thorns or eat around the thorns or walk in between the thorns. And then the plant responds in another way and the insect responds in another way. You have this, this tit for tat of coevolutionary race. And so if you can imagine that happening, you know, there's going to be some mutation at some point that says, well, you know, I've made this little net of, of something that isn't quite working. Maybe if I ate it at the same time or dissolved it at the same time, and then you've got one more step. And so these sorts of pathways from defensive chemistry or sticky glandular things, lots of plants are sticky, Mm -hmm. right? But most sticky plants are not carnivorous, but it's not a big stretch to go from something that's sticky to something that's sticky and makes an enzyme that dissolves chitin. Makes sense. And that's when you start to get in this idea of like some of the Silenes being proto-carnivorous or, mm-hmm. you know, that, that sort of deal, which exactly you know, gave rise to a handful of its own carnivorous lineages. Exactly. So there's a good place to look for more. Yeah. Now, just from a professional opinion standpoint, I am always very curious about, say, lineages like Nepenthes, which we know they're related to Sundews, the Drosera, in some way. But to go from a drosera leaf that's kind of sticky to a large tendril that produces this modified leaf pitcher, it, it's just curious that no intermediates would exist or we haven't found any or they just have gone, you know, have since gone extinct. From your professional standpoint, any sort of hypotheses why so often we see lacking in the middle ground and plenty of stuff out on the end there phylogenetically? Um, I have really I have no idea. Many of the carnivorous plants, so, you know, it's the same problem in many lineages that we don't have, not just the plants, that we don't have the intermediate forms. Um, And Steve Gould thought about rapid leaps in evolution, you know, years ago, and others have as well. And people's, they're either rapid leaps or gradual leaps. It depends on how genes are regulated and things like that. But one of the common themes in pitcher plants. So Agnes Arbor in the 1940s did a lot of research on the developmental biology of pitcher plant leaves, of all the different pitcher plants. And the pitcher plants have what are called an epiacidiate leaf, which basically means it's folded over on itself so that the bottom of the leaf, if you had a flat leaf, the bottom of the leaf is now the outside and it folds up into a tube. Mm-hmm. right? And then it fuses and you get the pitcher, you get the two. Well, if you look at some Drosera or if you look at Butterworts, Pinguicula, these leaves move a little bit. Mm-hmm. They roll, right? And so they don't roll all the way over and make a tube, but they roll a little bit. And th- There are lots of plants that move on stimulation. Mimosa, the classic sensitive plant that droops its leaves when you touch it. And so plants are sensitive and the tentacles on on Drosera certainly roll themselves over. And you can imagine that maybe it's not that hard to sort of roll over into into a pitcher, but imagine 
an intermediate pitcher isn't going to be very functional for anything. <laughs> I mean, it's not very good at photosynthesizing. It's certainly not going to trap any insects. And so you're not likely to see a lot of those intermediate forms. Right. Right. It's one of those that has to happen and then it happens either all or and nothing. Yeah. And then it works and yeah. off on a new trajectory. Now, I think this book has one of the best descriptions of how the Nepenthes pitcher is anatomically formed. And I really appreciate that because it does couch everything in the sense of the physics of the plants itself and then how yep. these traps work. And it is this complex differentiation between uh, you know, glands that absorb nutrients, glands that secrete the enzymes, and then uh, glands that produce wax crystals that then the insects... I mean, what were some of the things that you took away anatomically that you probably didn't know before in researching this book and putting it all together? Boy, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> it, there, there are so many amazing different ways that the plants do these things. It's, it's. I, I, I mean, we could spend the next more hours going through those but yeah so i i don't even know where to begin but it's nice to see it's certainly nice to have it all, all in one place and to then be able to, to look at the the common themes of these mm -hmm. to see how the how evolutionary patterns repeat themselves across lineages and what nepenthes is doing what saracenia is doing they're very similar yeah yeah. And then again, the, the, the other benefit of this book is it allows you to take the next step and, and it encourages this kind of multi-layered or multi-scale thinking that is sorely important for not only just conserving and understanding these plants, but putting them in the context of the greater spectrum of life and, and how plants evolve and adapt to unique environments. Which, which is true. And one of the things we explicitly asked the authors of every chapter to do was to not only think about what this is telling us about carnivorous plants, but what is it about plants in general that we can learn from carnivorous plants? And what is it about plants in general or other lineages of non-carnivorous plants? What can they tell us about carnivorous plants? And so getting those, those broader contexts back and forth, I think is really valuable because it's really easy for people to say, well, carnivorous plants, they're like the, their own weird thing and you can go study them, but they don't teach you anything about plants in general. Just like it's easy to say, well, you're studying this little pool of water in a pitcher plant leaf, but that really doesn't tell us anything about lakes. And so you look for the theoretical conceptual commonalities between these, these different parts to, to put them in, in much bigger contexts. And I, and we really, we really try to get authors to think about that and work on that. Um, and it's certainly easier in some it's when you're working on the detailed anatomy of, of trapping glands, that might be a little harder. But even there, you can learn things, like you said, about glands on silene and other caryophylls that are otherwise sticky or on teasel and think about, well, there are lots of plants that have glandular hairs and lots of defenses. And so what do they tell us about carnivorous plants? What do carnivorous mm. plants tell us about these other ones? I like this idea of the so-called non-model model systems, things that are a little, they may seem like you said, one-offs or these unique situations. But yeah, as you just described it, there's a lot to be learned there. And going back to your specialty that kind of got you into the carnivorous plant is these inquiline communities. Scaling up, I mean, do they teach you, have you learned things about the way that trophic cascades work or metapopulation dynamics works from focusing on these, what are essentially very minute systems, physically minute? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the early papers that Nick Atelli and I 
wrote about pitcher plants was about what is controlling the structure of these food webs. Is it the volume of the fluid in the pitcher? Is it the presence of the top predator? So is it top-down effects? Is it the bottom-up volume of bacteria or number of bacteria? And this is an important, I mean, this is, this is a fundamental question for community ecology. What's the importance of habitat? What's the importance of top-down versus bottom-up control on food webs that you can address experimentally here? But it's also really important in applied context because in most terrestrial systems and increasingly in marine systems, we hunt out the top predators. So we've eaten all the top predators on land, we've eaten all the big fish in the ocean, and we're fishing down the food web or hunting down the food webs on land. And so you can ask with carnivorous plants, which have relatively intact food webs, and say, well, what happens if you change the size of the habitat? What happens if you take away the top predators, the big fish, the lions from this system? How does the rest of the system respond? So we can do that with the pitcher plants. And we We've written metapopulation models for the inquiline communities, and we look at changes from clear water oligotrophic states to gross green slimy eutrophic states that you would find in lakes. We can induce the same things in pitcher plants. And so the same kind of eutrophication dynamics that worry fisher folk and, and people who like to vacation on lakes, we can study that in very rapid time in a carnivorous plant. And the the signatures of the bacteria and the proteins that are driving this are the same in a pitcher plant that you would see in a big lake. Wow. So, so there are lots of commonalities there. At the same time, there are idiosyncrasies about working with <laughs> carnivorous plants that you don't have working with other systems. Like you don't have giant fly larvae living in the, the lakes in Minnesota. <laughs> no, but you have carp, right? Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's really exciting to know that you know you don't have to go out and so-called conquer a lake in order to study these things. It can happen in a bog or you know just in a pitcher plant's urn. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Focusing in on the applied aspect here because so many people listening get into science or get involved with plants because they want to do something about conservation and and so many carnivorous plants can be poster children for conservation and, and poaching and all of these issues that are facing all sorts of walks of life. And, and there's something you say in the intro that really stuck with me more than and than any other passage is that it's not enough anymore to just be getting the data and giving it to the experts to make more data and, and write these papers. We need to be actively doing stuff with this data to better inform conservation efforts. So in the context of this book and what you've come together and edited and put together, what really is the state? Are you someone that has hope? And how can we move forward with better treatment of the carnivorous plants and then just the ecosystems that they rely on and so many of their neighbors rely on? Well, on the plus side, more and more people are getting excited about carnivorous plants, right? Hmm. On the bottom downside, of course, that either is because carnivorous plants are just so cool and everyone's getting excited about them, or they're just more people. And so if you have more people, you get by mass effect, will have more people interested in carnivorous plants. And of course, more people means more people and less room for other things. And the the biggest threat to carnivorous plants, as with many other species, is habitat conversion. So we develop land, we still fill wetlands. 
and they're usually growing in very isolated habitats. And so that kind of protection, protecting habitats is a lot harder than protecting individual species. But for many carnivorous plants, it's a matter of protecting their habitats first, and then you get the species. If you just protect the species and you can grow them easily in botanic gardens, well, you have captive plants, but you don't have them in the wild anymore. Because people more and more can grow them effectively, there is a lot less pressure on wild plants for the horticultural trade. People like looking at them. You Pictures in particular you find in flower markets around the world. Um, but most of these are now grown commercially as opposed to harvested from the wild, mm-hmm. although people still collect them and, and try and sell them. Climate change is, of course, a challenge for these. And, and we We have a whole chapter devoted to climate change and and how the change in climate is likely to make it more difficult for carnivorous plants to live in their current ranges. But in terms of immediate issues, the habitat modification is much, much more of a problem than the climate change problem is. Um, And it's really easy for people to focus on climate change because it's big and it's out there and it makes all the headlines, but it's that one more house going in, that one more more landfill being created, that one more bog being turned into forest or mined for peat that is much more of a conservation threat right now. On the flip side, you know, people like natural areas and they like carnivorous plants. So there are more people out there with boots on the ground looking at them and Mm -hmm. trying to protect habitat. Yeah, that's really great, too. Yeah, I mean, you're echoing so much of what I set out to do with this. And then what most people that come on here talk about is that you don't have any organism without a place for that organism to live. And habitat conservation really needs to be, above all else, the thing we we strive for with societies because, you know, climate change is big. It's easy to focus on, but it's also big and and global. So protecting habitat protects space and, and connects communities biologically, socially, all that stuff. But for the average person listening, I mean, they don't necessarily have access to buy land, but in terms of what the average listener or the person that's buying this book and wanting to read it, what, in your, again, opinion, do they rally behind land conservation agencies? Do they protect that little fen or bog in their community? What's What do you see uh, is the best way forward for the average listener? I mean, all of the above, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, perhaps one of the greatest uh, opportunities that that people have now are all the citizen science and monitoring initiatives that that people can get involved in with their, either through their local communities or state natural heritage programs. Illinois is a great example, right? Pitcher plants occur in Illinois and they're state listed. Saracenia is state listed in Illinois. And so it's on various watch lists. And the Natural Heritage Program has a volunteer program and you can sign up to monitor populations in your backyard, (laughs) your area or your county. They'll set you up and you can go out and look at that population every year and, and decide, you know, make notes. Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is it in good shape? And then more importantly than anything, you're watching things, your your eyes on the ground. And that's in a lot of ways, that's I don't want to give short shrift to the land protection agencies and things, but it's a lot more valuable in many ways to go out and look at things than to just write a check. Yeah. Right. You know, you can write a check and feel good like you just wrote a check. 
But unless it's enough of a check to actually fund a position, which it, most of us really can't <laughs> afford to do, yeah. um, you can be the position. You can go out and, you know, once a season or once a month, you can go check out the bog somewhere within 50 miles of you and say, how are my plants, you know, how yeah. are the plants that I'm stewarding, how are they doing, right? And all these citizen science opportunities, they're on the web, they're you know, on Facebook, on Twitter, through your state programs, through your county programs, those I think are the greatest ways to get to get started on this and to look for local botanic clubs or or carnivorous plant societies or scientific societies or conservation groups that that just get people out because we all live more and more. Most of us live in cities. And so we're more and more disconnected from yeah. these areas where these plants live. And in the abstract, it's great to talk about conservation of Saracenia. But now let's go out to a bog and look <laughs> at them and see what would actually be involved here. Yeah. I mean, having done hikes, taking people to see a Saracenia or a sundew, to see their eyes light up when they finally see a plant they've probably only seen in pictures or in a pot before in the wild, exactly. where it belongs, that fosters so much more, uh, like you said, a sense of stewardship or even, like you said, my plants. These People start to care when they start to put it mm -hmm. in context. Mm -hmm. And I think that's much more important. We often say, you know, people who do taxonomy that you have to do taxonomy first so that something has a name so that people don't care about things until they name it. <laughs> But I don't actually think that's enough. I think they have to see it, adopt it, taste it, smell it, feel it, see it in place, and then get that context that you talked about. And then they really care about it. Yeah, well said. So anytime a book like this gets put together, it's inevitably a learning process and surprises are made and misconceptions are overturned. Are there, a, you know, just a handful, not even your favorites or ones that stand out in the process of putting this book together, you know, a surprise that something you learned that you didn't know or maybe a, a, a myth or some sort of uh, misconception about a carnivorous plant that, that really opened your eyes to something new? Hmm. <laughs> I'm sure there is, but you know, you spend so much time reading and I wine edited every chapter to, you know, oh, try geez. and make the book be coherent that at some point you forget what you didn't know. Yeah. So I'm going to say absolutely there's stuff that I didn't know before I started reading this. Certainly I didn't know anything, anything at all about the genomics and transcriptomics before I started this. And the chapter that Laurent Legendre put together on the uses of carnivorous plants, there's lots of stuff in there that I'd never heard about before that just blew me away. So th <laughs> those are those are places that that really uh, that were really new for me, yeah. you know, because of the, the kinds of work I do with carnivorous plants, um, some systematics work and, and the field ecology work. There wasn't as much surprising material, but the molecular biology and the applied uh, the applied aspects were really new for me. Yeah. And imagine that for everyone that then goes forward to pick this up. As you said, you get into your specialty, you work within the bounds of what you know, and oftentimes it's hard to even know what to look for. But a book like the one you've put out really synthesizes material, and, and it's such a great question generator for, you know, from novices all the way up to professional scientists. This is a great undertaking, and I'm really happy you did undertake it. If anyone listening would like to pick it up, 
how do you recommend they go about picking it up? Well, you can always order it online, right? <laughs> you can order it direct from Oxford University Press. They'll ship worldwide, certainly from the U.S. and, the, and Europe. Um, Amazon, of course, handles it, usually for a couple bucks less than, than Oxford does. I give talks about it at various points. So I'll be giving a talk about it at uh, the International Carnivorous Plant Society meeting in Santa Rosa in August. I think whatever the Saturday is, August uh, 4th. And then another talk on September 27th in Atlanta at the Atlanta Botanic Garden in their Science Cafe series. I always bring books with me that I'll sign and sell at an even deeper discount. <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to discourage people from buying it right now because the more of the hardback we sell, the sooner Oxford will put it into paperback. But we expect it to go to paper uh, at the beginning of 2019 for, we hope, about half the cost of the hardback. The hardback is not cheap. The hardback version is really aimed primarily at the at the library market. It's about 100, 100 and change on Amazon right now. And we hope that the paperback one will be come out around 60, 60 bucks i mean it's a it's a big book you know it's a lot of work but those are the ways you can get it i mean it's like yeah. any other and oxford does sell it as an ebook so you can get it as an ebook as well you can also buy individual chapters through hmm. oxford's ebook program as far as i know a lot of university libraries that have subscriptions to oxford's book library you can read it chapter by chapter online so you can read it on your kindle you can read it on your <laughs> ipad you can read it with your pdf reader or you can hold it in your, your lap and you know you can always put it under your pillow and i'm sure it'll help you sleep better at night, <laughs> right? uh, if people want to find out more about you and your work personally how do they how do you recommend them finding out more about uh, your, your plethora of research so I work at the Harvard Forest. Harvard Forest is here in Massachusetts. Harvard Forest, as a department of Harvard University, of course, has a website. And if you do a Google search on me, my Harvard Forest page will come up. My Wikipedia page will come up and you can learn all about me and how to get a hold of me that way, too. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Ellison, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I mean it when I say this book is fantastic. You've done a great service to the world of carnivorous plants uh, and just plant curiosity in general. So keep it up. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Take care. All right. That was a great conversation, and this is a great book. I thank Dr. Ellison for sitting down and talking with us. I highly recommend you track it down and purchase it yourself. I know it's a little expensive, but if you're at all interested in carnivorous plants and you want to learn more about them and you want a nice summary of all of the research, go over there and get it. For those of you that are thinking about what you might want to study as you further your degree in ecology or botany, there's a lot of questions generated by reading what's in the pages of this book. It's beautiful, it's informative, and it's rather straightforward and easy to read. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for this episode. Again, consider supporting this podcast, patreon.com slash plants. This would not be what it is today without the support of our many patrons. So thank you to everyone who has donated thus far. Consider doing it if you haven't yet. If money isn't your thing, and I completely understand that, at the very least, give this podcast a review and hit that subscribe button. That is how all of the podcatchers make recommendations to new listeners. And if we're going to cure plant blindness, we got to get more people listening. Got a lot of great stuff coming up for you in the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned. Otherwise, I hope you all have a fantastic week. Adios, everyone. This episode was produced in part by... 
Philip, Henriette, Letitia, Ron, Tim, Carl, Lisa, Anthony, Susanna, Homestead Brooklyn, Brody, Kevin, Katharina, Sophia, Lisa, Brent, Plant by Design, Mark, Renz, Mountain Misery Farms, Bendix, Erin A., Holly, Clifton, Shane, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, and Margie.